you all. You just heard uh, we're about to start kind of a summer break around here, meaning there won't be any midweek gathering. Connect on Wednesday, really important part of what we do. Be taking the next six or so weeks off, but that still plenty going on. Even this Wednesday, come on back nine o'clock or get here early. Uh, bring your fire pit if you want to. Set up chairs, blankets, whatever, and enjoy a, a really fun fireworks display. Lots of fun. Probably the highlight of all of our Fourth of July festivities for our family last year is our kids. Know all of your kids. Nice, safe, fun. Not a lot of traffic getting out of here. So that's uh, really fun, especially if you remember to go out the Louisville direction and go down State Avenue instead of holding this up forever while I'm trying to get my soda. <laughs> so for what that's worth. Um, while we don't have church uh, on Wednesday nights for the summer, this is not the right time to disengage. In fact, uh, it'd be a really good time to lean in uh, more fully and get more engaged because we have a lot of stuff going on. Would recommend you not miss if you um, can help it. You can always watch online, but uh, we miss you when you're not here. Uh, we feel like something's missing, like when one of your kiddos isn't around the table for Christmas. Kind of what it feels like when you're not here, so you're missed. You bring something here, want you to be here. And we have a lot of stuff uh, that we'll be uh, going over this summer. Uh, get ready for Lincoln University uh, move, uh, move, fall move-in day. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, do have some announcements that we'll be making and explaining uh, more fully over the summer. We'll be introducing you to some new staff over the next couple of weeks that we've been working through. And one of the, the kind of the, the big things that's going to happen in the fall, just real quick, don't have a lot of time to talk about it, is we will be adding an additional uh, worship service starting in the fall, but it won't be on Sunday mornings. There'll still be a 9 and a 1045. What we'll be adding is actually a Saturday night service at 5 p.m. So we'll have a Saturday at 5, uh, starting at, uh, the first Saturday in October, and then two on Sundays, which just means we have a lot of uh, new opportunities uh, for people to serve on Saturday night with kiddos, uh, worship ministry, greeting, coffee, all those things. Everything we do on Sunday, we're just going to do again on Saturday night. Um, doing that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, running out of space in our lobby between services. And two, there's just a lot of folks who can't make it on Sunday morning. Uh, in fact, there's some folks over at the Sunoco just down the road. In fact, when you stop by there after church today, just remind them that we're starting a Saturday night service because they've told me they'd come to church, but they have to work on Sunday mornings. So um, there's some specific people there that have already told me the very first Sunday, Saturday they will be at church. Okay, So you just remind them over and over again they'll be coming. Got swing shift workers, got people working at the hospitals, all those different things. So want to make sure that we uh, create some space for them. So that happens in um, October. We will be taking a lot more time um, through July and August to discuss more of that and introduce you to some folks who will be helping make that happen. But that's not today. Right now, uh, uh, one of the things I'll just kind of highlight, come back uh, for fireworks, and then this week we have a couple other things going on. Getting ready for VBS next week. We'll get to pray over all the VBS volunteers um, next Sunday. But there is still some work days happening Monday, Wednesday, Friday of this week. Starting about 9 a.m., you should come. Help us get prepared for VBS. A lot of fun for our church family and our community. So that's going on. And this week and then at the end of this month, you get the opportunity if you so wish, which I'd recommend that you do. Go tour Urban Promise and uh, get to hang out with either Laura Wooden or Bev Henry and uh, take a tour of all the things going on in uh, downtown Wilmington. It's pretty spectacular. And for every one of you that decides to do that, uh, $25 will be given to Urban Promise. So hopefully a 1,000 of you will, and someone will have to write a check for $25,000. That would be awesome. So um, that's all those things. Once you know um, what's coming up, all those things. Hope, hope you come back on Wednesday. It'll be lots of fun. Now, um, if you're new here, kind of take uh, kind of some parts of Scripture, maybe chapters, maybe books, and we just work through them over uh, multiple weeks and just try to figure out what God could be up to. Uh, when we talk about the Bible, we actually believe it to be um, 
not just like a how-to manual or a checkbook or just a list that you check off and not something that to kind of guide your, you know, instructions or your value in life. What we would say is the Bible, written over about 15, 1,600 years with dozens and dozens of all, uh, authors, all writes one story about how much God loves us and what he does to redeem our world and bring us back to him, right? So from the very beginning, the book of Genesis, all the way to the end, the book of Revelation, the whole story is all about one hero. His name's Jesus. So the whole Old Testament um, points to the fact that we need help because we can't fix ourselves, and that Jesus comes to save the day, and that's where the New Testament starts. And so all of our scriptures kind of work through that, um, that framework or grid. And so we've been in the book of Genesis looking at how the world got here, how humankind got here. I would recommend you go to the website, clcfamily.church, if you want to catch up on any of those things. And what we've been on the last uh, few weeks is kind of a a, kind of a sequel to the original series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. We're looking at kind of the, the founding fathers of this, uh, this uh, what was a Judeo-Christian worldview, like this, the founding fathers that God uses to do something pretty, pretty spectacular. And so what we see, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, is the story of a, of a guy named Abram who becomes Abraham. So Genesis 1 through 11 is all just how broken and messy our world is and how we keep uh, becoming bankrupt right? This is where the flood happens. This is where the Tower of Babel, where things just crumble and people just uh, destroy each other. This is where brothers murder each other. All these horrific things. And so the beginning of the Bible just quickly jumps in and shows us what happens when humans just do whatever they want, however they want, and it ends badly. But everything changes in Genesis chapter 12, which we'd point to as the patriarchs, where it starts. And this is where God makes this covenant. And by covenant, what we mean is there are no stipulations. This isn't a contract you perform, therefore God performs. And as long as you perform well, God will perform well, right? Like you think about marriage or your mortgage or whatever those things are. A covenant is there is nothing that we have to do for God to do what he promises. So this isn't based on our performance, which is good because we're not that good at performing. This isn't based on our morality. is isn't based on any of those things. The whole idea of a covenant is God basically says, here is the promise. And the promise points to this one day, and we're kind of experiencing this, and we'll experience to a greater level this payoff that God will just make all things right. He tells us in Revelation that there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow, which is pretty interesting because we don't really think about why we cry, right? We just know that we have these feelings, and the reason you have all those feelings is because every time you shed a tear, every time you feel that pain, what you're being reminded of in your brain to your heart that your body is explaining to you that this world is broken. There is something off in the way that it was supposed to be. And so God, who made a world, created it, in his, uh, and created it and then created us in his image and his likeness, had a really beautiful plan for us. And what we discovered really early on in the scriptures is that the world that we currently live in isn't the way that God originally designed it. Sin gets in the middle of it, and it just runs amok, and it's just created a mess. But God has a promise, a covenant, that he says there one day will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. So I want you to see these kind of bookends. There's a promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 12. At the end of this, uh, there will be a payoff, right? There's a promise and a payoff. That's alliteration. I've been studying Charles Spurgeon. He's a Baptist minister, so these P's are coming out of me right now, right? Just Baptist alliteration. Here it is, right? So there's this promise, and there will be a payoff, right? And some people say all sorts of stuff in the middle, like there's a process. That's cute, right? Because that's a P. But it's not really a process, because that implies that there's something we're doing to make the payoff happen, right? And that's not how it works. There is a promise. There will be a payoff. And the way by which those things happen, you ready for this, is God's 
providence. There it is, another P, right? And so as we think about these next uh, couple of weeks, what we're going to be thinking about is this term providence, really, really important term in the scriptures. And what providence, when you hear the word, I want you to see two things. First, I want you to see an eyeball, right? Providence basically means God sees everything. He is seeing everything, but he's not just watching it like to entertain himself. I want you not just to see an eyeball. I want you to see his hands. Like not only is he seeing everything, he is working in everything. In other words, he is bending and shaping everything for our good and his glory. So there will be a payoff one day. That's the promise made in Genesis chapter 12. And the way by which that promise is going to be fulfilled in that payoff is all by God's doing. He is going to do this. And he tells us in Genesis chapter 12, starting with Abraham, that he will make a way where there is no way. And he will uh, redeem everything. He will bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And there will be a day where it will all be good. And so he makes this promise to Abram, means father. And he even says to Abraham, or Abram in his old age, you're going to have a kid. And Abram's going, wait, we're old. Don't think that's going to happen. I joked about that last week. Uh, Abram has Isaac. It was an offensive joke. So I just want to make sure to revisit the joke just in case you didn't hear it last week. And so the, the word Isaac means laughter, right? And the way that I kind of presented it is here's what's really funny about his name is that when Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah were both over 100. So that meant all of them, all of them were in diapers. Not funny today either, okay? Thank you, guys. Um, here's another way I'd present it. So Abraham and Isaac, I mean, this isn't true, but Abraham and Sarah, they have a baby at the hospital, and then they take the baby and they put it in the back of their Buick and drive home. No, no, okay. I thought it was funny. I thought old people drove Buicks. I was just trying to explain that, but okay, forget it. Okay, so Abraham and I, um, Sarah have Isaac. There's some crazy stuff that happens in that story. We talked about it last week. Don't have time to revisit it. And then Isaac becomes a grown man. He's seen some pretty crazy things where God comes through. Remember, Isaac was put on an altar. God still um, uh, provides, a, you know, a salvation for Isaac and uh, sacrifice for Isaac and Abraham. Go back and listen to that. And now we're going to kind of look at the story of Isaac's life today once he has kiddos. Now, um, as a teacher, uh, I'm just make sure you all understand this. There's these two worlds that I, I try to live in, okay? Uh, one, if we, one of the terms that we use around here is expository preaching, okay? What that means is we actually open up the scriptures. I don't just want to talk to you about something cute, tell you some stories. I literally want to open up God's word and I want to read it to you, right? And then that word expository, I want you, when you think of that word, I want you to hear the word expose, right? Like it means that we open up these scriptures and we expose the truth of them to you, right? You do not want me to give you just my opinions. They are worthless. And most of my opinions lead me astray, right? Most of the great ideas I have on their own just wreck me, wreck everything else. So the idea is that we open up God's scripture and we expose the truth that God reveals in his word. Okay, really neat. Not to say, if you don't believe all this stuff, just keep coming. One of the things it tells us in a, in a different portion of the Bible in Isaiah that God actually says that his word never returns void, meaning every time it goes out, it's going to have some kind of impact. So just keep showing up, and you can be skeptical of all that stuff. We're just pretty confident in this, so you're welcome to be skeptical. Just keep showing up, and let's see what happens, right? And so part of it is this expository preaching. You want to make sure that we open up the scriptures and expose that stuff too, which we do every week. Today we'll read about 38 verses, I think, 37 verses, somewhere around there. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of reading there. But the, the problem is, is um, just giving you a bunch of information, right? Feeding you just a bunch of truth in the scriptures. If you don't do anything with it, if you don't exercise, it just makes you spiritually obese, right? We can give you a bunch of information. So I have this, I, have this, um, I think, command from God and this burden to make sure we do expository preaching, expose the scriptures to you. 
But what, um, expository preaching without expository living is kind of waste, right? Jesus actually tells us in the New Testament, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, right? There's actually this, there's something should happen here. So while I love the expository teaching part, really the, the conviction for me is that we can't just talk about expository preaching. We actually have to do expository living, meaning as a result of what we're learning about God and us as a result of the scriptures, something should change in our life. So every single week, there's kind of this tension of going, boy, I want to teach you the scriptures, but it's not because I want to teach you the scriptures so you can be impressed and win a trivia challenge, right? It's because God actually wants you to do something with what you learn. And so um, it's kind of one of those, the tension of how do we help you practice this and how do you help you understand it? Today will be a little um, uh, neat because there'll be actually two parts that we'll work through. One will be a lot of expository teaching. We're going to work through some pretty hefty passages in Romans and then in Genesis. So there'll be a lot to understand. But then it, it'll be very clear that there'll be a very specific expository living piece of this. That go, this is now what you should do as a result of it. So um, if you get a little lost in the, the headiness of the, the academia or whatever, the expository preaching piece, just hold tight. In a few minutes from there, we'll actually get some good application. Okay, So that will happen there. By the way, you guys are really pretty good at this expository living thing. Like, one of the things that we're seeing across the, the, the board here is just the impact you're making in your community. I'm so proud of what's going on with foster care stuff. Really had a great conversation uh, last week before last with uh, Reverend Faison over at Lincoln University, and he's just so pleased at, I mean, he wants to sit down and he feels like we need to do a write-up, like some kind of scholarly journal article about what happened over Christmas with cookies, Remember this, when we asked you to bake about 1,000 and about seven or 8,000 showed up, which was a lot more than we really needed. Really glad you helped. And so what ended up happening for those of us who distributed them, you all gave them in like Ziploc bags, which was beautiful because we then repurposed those Ziploc bags and sent hundreds, if not thousands of students back to their dorm room with dozens of cookies. Like there is this um, really, really, he wants to talk about communion happens over cookies and he wants to write this article and all these different things. I mean, just... Even um, what uh, the, the president of the college was just amazed at just the love that this church showed and trying to figure it all out and trying to now explain why it happened. And other than you guys just are gracious and kind. And when we ask you to jump in, you jump in. Same thing, have the same kind of conversations with folks in downtown Oxford about uh, the ways that you participate. We're just, we're just seeing it all over the place. And so, in fact, um, about a month and a half ago, I got a, a voicemail call from uh, Senator Kim Ward's office. Uh, she's one of our state uh, senators, and her office is responsible for finding the guest chaplains for the Senate. So if you don't know, every, before every session meeting, a, a chaplain gets to pray over the Senate, right? And so um, Senator Andy Deniman, uh, that's our local senator from here, um, was asked to make a recommendation of a guest chaplain. Now, I've never spoke to Andy Deniman. Uh, now I have, but at the point, didn't know him, wouldn't be able to call him out of a lineup, have no experience, no interaction with him. And so when um, Senator Ward asked Senator Deniman to make a recommendation of a guest chaplain, he immediately thought it should be our church because of all the stuff that you've been participating in and the influence we have, right? That's not me. I haven't done anything. It's you guys doing an expository living piece, and so they invited me to go do that, and I'm was thrilled by it. I was like, absolutely, I'll go pray for a couple hours there. Yeah, so, so, um, so they told me it was supposed to be a one or two minute prayer. I chuckled. 
I was like, okay, guess I'll talk really fast. And that it was supposed to be non-denominational. And I wanted to be respectful and go, hey, is it okay if I, like, say in Jesus' name? I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, and they're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Thursday, um, my family drove up to Harrisburg, and so nice. And Senator Denman was so um, accommodating. We went to his office. We talked for a while. Find out he's Jewish, which is interesting. Cause I'm, he's talking about loving the old school, like teaching through Genesis. I'm like, I'm teaching through the patriarchs right now. And he was excited about that. And had some good interaction. Tell him some stuff that's going on here. And um, he was so accommodating. In fact, our family is supposed to sit up in the, 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 the gallery. What we call that here is the non-Christian section. You know what I'm talking about up there? Yeah. So... Um, so they're supposed to be there, and Senator Denman was like, no way, you've got to sit on the floor. So there's these huge chairs, like the chair that I was sitting in next to the, um, the president of the Senate, the lieutenant governor. It was so huge, I couldn't touch the ground. Like I kept trying to, just couldn't get my feet down, right? And right down off the floor was Julie and another one of the big chairs, and all the kids were sitting around her, and it was all sorts of complicated. And so um, then they invite me to pray, which is really, really awesome. And if you don't know, I don't know if you keep up with the politics, uh, Wednesday was a historical day in the Senate, not for good reasons. There was a huge fight. Like, people stormed off. Uh, the, the president of, of the Senate, the, the lieutenant governor, t- walked away from the podium. And you're not supposed to do that. So then the, 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 the majority leader for the Republicans jumped up and took over the, the gavel and called for a vote. I mean, it was, it was complete chaos. There was all sorts of... Um, politicking and press conferences, they actually were in the Senate chambers till 11.30 on Wednesday night. So when we get there the next morning, it was a, a pretty hefty day. And so I'm talking to Senator Denman, how can we pray, all that kind of stuff. And so got the privilege uh, that morning to pray. And so I prayed, and as I was praying, I, I mean, it was, I think, a couple minutes. I tried to be fairly honoring of that. And so I just prayed to our Creator God, told Him how gracious it was that He would hear us, and that His mercies are new every morning. Really wanted that for those politicians, right? And then um, just reminded Jesus of his words and his promises. One, he uses his brother, James, that says, hey, whoever asks for wisdom gets it. So I'm talking and I'm praying through uh, Romans 13 where God tells us through Paul that God actually ordains the, the, the government and is to protect us. So I can pray confidently that all 50 people sitting in the room, all 50 senators are appointed for such a time as right now. So pretty neat that God's orchestrating that with his providence. I'm praying that and praying that these senators would care for human beings and see them all in the image of God because they all are. And they all are people that God loves and wants for them to live a full life like Jesus in John 10, 10. So I'm just praying those things. And hey, God, you tell us that you offer full life. Really want that for the commonwealth? Could, could you do that? And could you use these 50 people to do that? And God, you tell us through James that you give wisdom whoever asks for it if they ask with a pure heart. So I'm praying for pure heart, and I'm going, and by the way, Jesus, you tell us in your famous sermon that blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God, and so would you just fill this room with pure hearts, right? Seems to make sense to me, and then I pray in Jesus' name and, and say amen, and everybody sits down, and then one by one, it's so, it's so chaos, it's so chaotic. Like, they come in for the vote, for the prayer, and then it's just like ants everywhere, like having their little, you know, caucus meetings in different corners, all sorts of stuff. And a few of them walked by me as this was happening. And one, uh, I recognized her as a Democrat in the middle of the fight the day before. And she comes up and says, thank you so much for praying for pure hearts because there's not any of those in this room. <laughs> okay. You're welcome, I think. But that, was, that wasn't the motivation, right? Then the next person comes by and he's like, hey, brother, thank you for praying in Jesus' name. That a boy, you, way to go and tell them about Jesus. Way to make sure Jesus is the one that they hear about. 
And I, I appreciate that, but that wasn't the motivation of the thing, right? The motivation wasn't trying to get a dig and make them hear Jesus' name seven times. Like, somehow that's going to save them, right? The, the motivation wasn't to try to uh, manipulate people or to force my belief down their throat. The motivation was, God, you tell us whatever we ask in Jesus' name you will do. You don't say you'll do it in anybody else's name. So I actually would love for all these senators to have pure hearts. And I'd love for them to care about all their constituents, regardless of their, you know, national or ethnicity or sociopolitical status or any of those things, right? Because this is important here, guys. When Jesus gives us the great command to love your neighbor, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice this. He doesn't say love your political ide- ideology as yourself. Doesn't say love your party as yourself. He doesn't even say love your religion as yourself. What he clearly says is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So there is a mandate for all of us to love our neighbor, and I wanted that for all of us, right? That's them, that's us, that's all those things, and so I'm just praying through those things and going, it's so weird how these people can pick up on one word and just think that I had the same motivation and the same agenda as they did. And there's just this weird entitlement that just shows them all this. It's not a shot at the senators, it's just just this weird entitlement that just kind of this oppression in that building of, you know, there's some belief and neat things. And what's really interesting is 1682, kind of the first establishing of a state. Now, this isn't Delaware. I'm talking about this is long before, um, long before uh, the, the Constitution, uh, the, uh, we become a nation. I mean, almost 100 years earlier. But there is established a group of people in Pennsylvania who voted on something. The very first thing they voted on was the freedom of religion. 1692, William Penn kind of creates this deal and because they came from a place that was really oppressed and so there's just this thing and now here we are three four hundred years later looking back on our world and we have this freedom and this entitlement we celebrate it this week independence day we call it fourth of july but it's independence day meaning we get independence and there's all this stuff that just happens and it's just really easy for us to lose sight of the privileges we have and get to talk to God on that. And so even in all that stuff, is going, man, how in the world do we get so far off that we can't just pause for a second and see that there's a creator God who created us in his image and had a, has a plan for all of us. He loves his children. He loves the world and wants to redeem the whole thing and wants to use us to do it. And so I'm really proud of your kind of expository living and the, the, the influence that we get to have. So good job. Keep, keep up the work. But there is something that just kind of gets highlighted there of just how— unaware we are of the privileges and the grace God gives us to chase after the kingdom every single day in the world that we live in. And as I was thinking about that, I was actually reminded of some of Paul's writings in the New Testament as he kind of explains all this to a bunch of Jews who had like God's calling on their life, had the pedigree of all these patriarchs who kind of just walked astray and go, we don't need God to provide. We're pretty good at providing for ourselves, which is where our country is. We have the greatest ideas. We have the greatest plans on both sides of the aisle, right? We can do it ourselves. We don't really need a God to do it. And Paul decides to write to these Romans, both Jews and Greeks, of going, boy, you're missing it because there is a promise and there is a payoff. But the way by which that happens isn't clever human beings. It's actually through the providence of God. And so I just want to read to you what Paul writes to them. And you'll see where it fits to the patriarchs in just a second. Just to kind of get us all back to the focus of what is God calling us to do and how does that happen. And I would just say, God is calling us to trust him and believe that he's the one who's going to bend and shape things for our good. That's important for us to remember. It's actually good for us and for his glory. And so here it goes, Romans chapter 9. He's writing to... 
these people that think that God forgot his promises. That's essentially that. No. Last thing I'll say about Romans before we jump in is this is a complicated text and really going, God, do you want to teach it now? Because it's, it's really complicated. It's complicated for a lot of reasons. Paul's brilliant, has lots of education, lots of religious experience, and he's a very active human being. So a lot of his writing, but particularly um, uh, Romans, was written in a kind of a, um, a transcribed fashion where he's talking and he has a secretary writing it down. So you're going to see lots of parenthetical phrases. I mean, this is worse than Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. I mean, there's like paragraphs that are one sentence kind of stuff. Um, and so here goes, just so you know, when he begins Romans chapter 9 with this, I speak in the truth of Christ, meaning, hey, this is where providence comes from. The way that God does all this is actually through Jesus, so we can't lose sight of this. This is not our work. It's his work and our witness. So he starts with, in Jesus' name, right? Not because he's trying to be arrogant or dogmatic. He's just going, all good things, all salvation, all comes through Jesus. By the way, I uh, Senator Denman, who is a Jewish guy, had no problem with my prayer. Was thrilled by it. We're going to get back together, and I mean, I'm okay if he listens to this. I'm gonna, we're going to pray like crazy that the Lord saves him. I think he will. It'll be a beautiful day, um, and all those different things. But anyway, um, uh, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So Paul's going, look, this is not about me. This is about Jesus and his Spirit, his, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's where all the providence of God happens. It's not in our work or our ability. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So he's looking at all these people, and he is sad, right? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he comes from this religious background. He was a, a Jew before he became a Christian, so essentially a Messianic Jew. And he is so sad because there are these people that God made this promise to, Abraham, these patriarchs, who just forgot it and say, no, we don't need you, God. We'll do our own thing. And it Paul's going, man, I'd actually give up my salvation for the sake of this. I mean, it's a pretty significant thing. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. He's going, so from the very beginning in Abraham, God made promises, and it was going to come through this lineage. It was all available to them. There was a promise, and there will be a payoff. It was going to be God's providence, and they turned their back on it, and he is just devastated of this, like gave up their, their inheritance, Right? Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. So he's going, let's go back all the way to Abraham and trace it down. Jesus even comes through this lineage. Who is God over all, right? He's the providence, forever praised, amen. Like, just declare it as such. It is true. Then, verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. So kind of his thoughts are going, wait, you think that God didn't, didn't fulfill his promises because it's all gotten a record. And he's going, no, no. It's not that God's promises have failed, Right? It's not that his word, remember, it was a promise, there's going to be a payoff. It's not like that's, that, that's off the table now. It's still going. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he's going, it's not all about the Jews anymore. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, watch this, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or called back. So he's going, no, no, there's always been a plan. Let's go back to it. God made a promise to Abraham. All of the offspring of the world, by the way, Jews, Christians, and Islam all come from this, this lineage of Abraham, right? So you got Ishmael, firstborn son, um, out of wedlock and a broken sinful thing. Ishmael gets kind of excommunicated. There's a whole lineage of people. That's where Islam kind of traces its roots. So all people have come through this. Through, and then it says, now on the other side, there's been this group uh, that comes through Isaac. Watch this. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be called back. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So he's going, look, let's just be clear here. 
This isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about the color of someone's skin. This isn't about where they were born or how they grew up or who their mom or daddy are. None of that. He's going, none of that is how this whole thing happens. The way that it all happens is through God's providence, through his son, Jesus. For this was the promise. Uh, this was how the promise was stated. So let me remind you of the promise that's going to have a payoff through God's providence. Here's what it says. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So he's going, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Remember, Abraham was told that he was going to have a kid with Sarah. They're going, no way. They laugh. They have Isaac. Everybody laughs. Really crazy story. At the appointed time, when God saw fit, that's what happened. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So, okay, Abraham has Isaac. God comes through, provides for them. Isaac gets married to Rebecca, and they have two kids. They're twins, Jacob and Esau, right? Um, yet, before the twins were born or hadn't done anything good or bad, this has nothing to do with their performance, in order that God's purpose in election, meaning he is going to do and make happen what he says he will do and make happen, right? God's election might stand, not by works. This is not about human performance, but by him who calls. She was told, this is where it gets complicated, the older will serve the younger. So in this dream, Rebecca finds out that the older Esau is going to serve the younger Jacob. In other words, this is backwards from how things are usually promised, right? There is the, the, the oldest gets the birthright. The oldest gets the inheritance. Even if you look at our government right now with Donald Trump being president, his oldest son is the one in charge of most of the things, right? We just see that happen in most worlds, and it was definitely that case then. And so God actually tells Rebecca, it's not going to be that way. Something interesting is going to happen so that you'll know it's from me that Jacob is actually going to be the one in charge and Esau is the one who's not. No, nobody knows why at this point when Rebecca hears this. We're going to find out why in just a second. And it says this, the older will serve the younger. And this is where it gets really complicated. Just as it is written. This is God's words. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I, see that, hated. Now, this is really complicated, and this is why it goes, oh, we can't just read about Jacob and Esau and not deal with this, because Paul actually says that God loves Jacob and he hates Esau. That doesn't sound very godly, right? So how in the world does God choose one and not choose the other? That, does that mean he damned Esau for all eternity, and that was his plan, just to create this little minion that have a bad life and be miserable and go to hell forever? Is that the God we serve, right? I mean, this is, this is hefty for us, because that's not a God that we're very interested in serving. The one that creates human beings just to suffer, is that how God works? And yet here we see right here, he goes, hey, there are two. One was selected to lead, the other was selected to follow. And there was a reason for that. It was because he loved one, he hated the other. So what do we do with that? Well, before we work through that, I just want to make sure you understand the whole story of Jacob and Esau. So here's a video, four minutes, get comfortable. Here's the story of Jacob and Esau.
So these are the type of stories that make it hard to believe in a God, right? So if you're not like a Christian, not interested in the Bible, it's this kind of stuff going, see, that's just all crazy. Dressing up in sheepskin, all sorts of lying and manipulation. That sounds like the people that I know now. Why in the world would I want to be a part of that stuff? And that's how God works. And there is some quite, there's some real complication there. And, and God even tells us in the scriptures, got to talk about it, that Jacob have I loved, Esau had, have I hated, right? So we got to work through a couple of those things. Now, um, as we think through this, really important that we let's separate these two things real quick, okay? Um, let's talk about Jacob loved, Esau hated, not together. I think it's more complicated if we try to do it all together. So just take one part at a time. Okay, God says he loves Jacob. Now, all of us would agree Jacob's a broken human being, right? Manipulates more than we ever did. I don't know if any of you ever dressed up in sheepskin to get your uh, family's inheritance. We've done all sorts of stuff. But what we see here very, very clearly, right, that Jacob is not a great dude, like, this isn't, what he did here is not good behavior. This isn't what God's saying, act like Jacob here, be disobedient, be manipulative. That, that's, not, that's not the moral of the story. It is if you manipulate, you get what you want. That, that's not at all the moral of the story. The moral of the story is Jacob is not a good dude. What he does is inappropriate. And we would say, okay, if God loves Jacob, it has nothing to do with Jacob's behavior. In other words, God does, Jacob doesn't do anything to make God love him. This isn't about Jacob being the better son, the better performer. He got better grades. He gave away more of his money. This is not those kind of things. So easily it's here, I mean, it's really simple to say here. As a result of this, it's really, we can go and go, nope, it's not that Jacob's a good dude. He's not a good dude. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to be his friend. Wouldn't want that to be my son, right? So we can simply say that if God loves Jacob, it has nothing to do with Jacob's behavior. Which, by the way, is really important for us. Because God loves us. And it has nothing to do with how well you perform. And see, we have this lie in our head that says, as long as I do good, God loves me. When I do bad, I need to stay away from him because he's really angry and just wants to punish me, right? The reality is in this room and all across our globe, there is nobody good enough to earn God's love. So on one instance, we got to go, okay, if God loves Jacob, it has nothing to do with Jacob's performance. It has to do with God being loving. In fact, that's a story for all of us. If God loves us, if God loves us, it's not because we're good or we performed well. So that's one end, right? Jacob is loved by God because God chooses to love him, okay? In fact, this is what it says here. So we got one person, and you go, okay, well, God loves Jacob, but he doesn't love Esau. Isn't that unjust? Like, shouldn't he love them both? Watch this. Verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul's response. Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. He's going, what do you mean? You're telling God who he can like and who he can't like? Nobody deserves God liking him. Or, nobody, right? And so this doesn't make God unjust. God can choose to do whatever he wants to do. You know why? Because he's God. Here's a really, really simple, and it's going, I promise we'll wrap it up better than this, but just simply. Do you know who this universe belongs to? The simple answer is not you. And when you create your own universe, be really neat one day when you do, you can decide to love whoever you want to in it, okay? You can create all the rules you want to, but because you don't have a universe, you don't create the universe, and you didn't design the universe, and you didn't speak into existence, it seems weird that you would dictate how the universe would operate. So 
Imagine the arrogance in us to tell God whether or not his behavior is okay with you. Right? And so we got that piece. Now that doesn't resolve much. It actually goes, well, but it's still, if you want me to worship you, God, then it makes sense I understand the God that I'm worshiping. No, it continues. Watch this. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, not, this isn't going to help you yet, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Oh no, first we said Jacob have I love, Esau have I hated. Now we're talking about God actually hardened people's hearts. That's what we're talking about, Pharaoh. Now, one of the things that's really helpful here to me uh, is a Spurgeon quote, and he says the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So you put wax out and you put clay out, the same exact mechanism, depending on the, the, the composition of the material, one of them will soften, one of them will harden. So there is some things to understand here about Pharaoh that's going, God gave him 10 opportunities. And every time he dug his heels in a little bit more, and we'll talk about that in a month or two, he dug his heels in a little bit more and said, absolutely not, God. I don't want you to be in control of my life. I'll be in control of my own life. And so you literally see them dig their heels in. And I promise we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up at the end and you'll, you'll feel better about it. A little bit uncomfortable in this moment. And so the same sun that melts the wax, the same one that says, trust me, there are people that go, okay, God, I recognize I am not in control. I need to trust you and will trust you. And the same exact call, the same, can you trust my promises? Do you believe in the payoff? Do you believe my providence is the one that's going to make it happen? And some of us go, yep, we do. And others go, nope, I'd rather be in control of my own life. And so we see this, and so what he's basically saying here is, hey, for some people, there is a great response. For Jacob, I have a love, but for Esau, have I hated. And so now we're talking about Jacob. Yep, God chose to love him the same way he chooses to love us, really nicely. I'm not about our behavior. Hear that. It is not about your behavior. You did not earn God's affection. None of us. None of us are capable of earning God's affection. And yet God so graciously gives this to us. So let's talk about Esau then. While we can't wrap our minds around the whole thing, can we at least admit, based on the story, based on who Esau is, based on all those things, based on his laziness, based on his inability to control his appetite, all those different things, all of his different behaviors. Did Esau deserve to be loved by God? Did he do enough good things to make God love him? Was his performance excellent enough? He says he didn't even like his birthright. Didn't even despise it. We'll talk about that at the end, right? Did he do anything to actually earn God's favor? Did he perform well enough? Was he perfect enough? Did he check all the boxes and do everything right, never have an impure thought, always do the right thing? Did he do enough to earn God's love? And we go, of course not. Of course he didn't, right? So we know Jacob didn't do it, and God loved him. So that's one issue. Wow, that's for the gracious of God. And on the other end, here's what we have to understand. That just because Esau didn't uh, get God's love, it doesn't mean he deserved it. Right? We are all equally all of us, equally undeserving of God's love. Let me just read you what Spurgeon says in 1859. It's going to take me a second. But really, really some good thoughts, better than my own. No man is saved by his own free will, but every man is damned by it that is damned. He does it on his own will. No one constrains him. You know, sinner, that when you go away from here and put down the cries of conscience, that you do it yourself. No one makes you do those things. You know that when, after a sermon, you say, I do not care about believing in Christ, you say it yourself. You're quite conscious of it. And if not conscious of it, it is notwithstanding a dreadful fact that the reason why you are what you are is because you will to be what you are. Can't we just admit that you are who you are because you chose to be who you are? You willed it to be? Nobody else calls that on your behalf? He saves man by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. 
I have endeavored to give a scriptural reason for the dealings of God with man. He saves men by grace. And if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. So yeah, God's gracious. But if men perish, it's not God's fault that they perish. God didn't send them to hell, right? This is their own behavior. Now watch what he says here. How, says uh, someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines, these two beliefs that God saves some and others perish, right? My dear brethren, so good. I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another for they are both in God's words and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. If you show me that they are enemies, then I will reconcile them. But says one, there is a great deal of difficulty about them. Well, you tell me what truth there is that is not difficulty about it. But he says, I do not see it. Well, I do not ask you to see it. I ask you to believe it. There are many things in God's words that are difficult and that I cannot see, but they are there and I believe them. I cannot see how God can be omnipotent and man be free, but it is so and I believe it. Well, says one, I cannot understand. My answer is I am bound to make it as plain as I can, but if you have not any understanding, I cannot give you any. There, I must leave it. But then again, it is not a matter of understanding. Hear this. It's a matter of believing. This is a matter of understanding. You can't understand all the things of God. It's a matter of believing. Hey, Ab- oh, watch this. No, I'll just let him say it. Did not Abraham believe in God even when God's promises seemed to contradict his providence? Right? Hey, Abraham, you're going to have a child. There's no way, right? Abraham was old. And Sarah was old. But God said Sarah should have a child. How can that be? said Abraham, for Sarah is old. And yet Abraham believed the promise and Sarah had a son. Remember when Abraham messed it up? He actually created Ishmael. He didn't do it, but God, through his providence, does. Here's the the, the kicker here. God's not asking you to understand this. Even be able to wrap your mind around this, how he makes things happen. He's just asking you to trust him. So let me give you some thoughts there. Uh, The hate piece is uh, a little triggering for some people. That's fair. Should be. Um, we're going to find out that there's some entitlement and brokenness in Esau as we read through the story one more time at the very end of this. But some of you have kids. Some of you have adult kids. And some of you have adult kids that you don't like their behavior at all. Right? They become entitled. They become mean. They've stolen from you. They've lied. They've been deceitful. They've done all sorts of horrible things. And you can think and process and you can look at them and not maybe say it out loud. Maybe you wouldn't do that. Maybe you would. I don't know. And you can think, I hate who you've become. This is not how I created. This is not my dreams I had for you. And yet, you willed it to be, and I hate the human being. I hate the person you've become and the things that you've chosen to do. Right? We can see this as addiction grabs hold of people. and We can even excuse their behavior as a result of it and still hate the stuff that they're doing. Right? That is, that is not a bad parent to hate what someone's become. You had great dreams of your children and they'll deep sorrow and pain as a result of what this world and what the, their will has done to them. Right? You can literally know that you have hate the person they have become. And so you see this deal and you see these two different people. You got Jacob and Esau. Neither one of them are good. But it's possible to look and hate what a hardened heart has become, right? Watch this, verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you? This is Paul writing. A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore, watch this, 
with great patience. What if God was still so patient and hoping people would turn around, hoping that their hearts would soften? With great patience, the objects of his wrath, before he says, I hate what you've become. Prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? What if he did this, showed that so those of us who turn and those of us whose hearts are melted and go back to God, what if he did all that? Whom he prepared uh, to show us his mercy, whom he prepared in advance of glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will carry... Uh, call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And I, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So he's saying, what if God is doing all this to show that this entitlement actually hardens our heart? But those of us who are called to God, all nations, all creeds, who turn back and go, God, we trust you. What if God, rich in mercy, offers his love and grace to all people as a result of this? Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. For the Lord will, um, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, right? Um, We would have been like Gomorrah. Unless the Lord does something rich in mercy and calls us back, then we too would ruin our own lives. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles are the ones who weren't growing up with that promise, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. A righteousness that is by faith, meaning they just trust God and God does all the works, is all his providence. But the people of Israel who pursued the laws, the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith. Watch this. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by their works. They thought they could earn something on their own. They were so arrogant and so prideful and so self-reliant. They said, we don't need you, God. We can do this ourselves. And watch what it says. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So they stumbled. There was a stumbling. There was a stone in their way. And I just want to read you the story now that you see with Jacob and Esau as it was written. I just want to point out the stumbling stone. In, remember I told you, it's going to be heady, expository teaching. Now here's the expository living. This is it. Back to Genesis chapter uh, 25. Here's what it says, beginning verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of, of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but, um, but Rebekah loved Jacob, right? So you got some favoritism here. It's going to create mess. We're going to look at Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob for the next three weeks. So we'll get to revisit a lot of this. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, first tell me your birthright. So typically in all of our worlds, I mean, it's in my family too, the older sibling doesn't need anything from the younger sibling. The younger sibling needs something from the older sibling. That's just how it works, how it's always worked. And all of a sudden, we have this moment in history where the older needs something from the younger, so the younger goes, aha, this is my chance. What should I go after? Should I get his Hot Wheels? Should I get his Legos? Nope, I want something greater. I'm going after the birthright, right? This is crazy. So Jacob says, yeah, I'll give you some soup. Here, but I need your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? This isn't being logical. If I don't live, then I won't get the birthright anyway. I might as well at least live and give it up, right? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. He gives up all of his inheritance. He gives up the promises from God and from his dad, Isaac, all for a bowl of soup. And you go, that is just foolish, right? Just completely foolish. But uh, just to be real honest, we do it all the time. We just have different appetites, 
Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, it's interesting about appetites. We all have them, but here's what they do. One of three things. Three things about appetites. Uh, God created them. Sex, food. God created them for you to enjoy them, but sin distorted them, right? Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. We consume it not enough, so it's got to be the next thing. They never go away. It's interesting, though, because we all live as if there's something out there that will finally satisfy our appetite because there is no such thing. Esau literally didn't see the God of the universe as the one who satisfies. He saw it as a bowl of soup. And the third one is this. They always whisper now and never later. So just practically, hey, there's some things that you're going to give up, some really great promises for your marriage, for your kids, for your family, because you can't stop looking at that thing on the computer. You can't stop hiding that thing. You can't stop lying about that thing, right? There are these appetites. We go, no, 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 it's not us. We're going, look, this is very clear and practical that Esau literally gave up his birthright because he could not control a craving. And yet all across this room, we have cravings that we're not controlling. So just as a practical step, we're not too far off from Esau. And you go, well, how do you stop that? Oh, so nice. God is so gracious to us in this. And this is what it says, for, uh, verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank, or he ate and drank and then got up and left. That's it. That's the story. He just ate the soup and walked away and walked away from his birthright. And you go, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? Like, what compelled him to this? And honestly, we get the whole answer to why God loved Jacob, hated Esau, all in the very last part of this verse, 34b, and I just want you to see what it says. So Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. That word despised is the word that we'd use for um, uh, contempt are worthless. Like it's a judgment of something having no value. So literally we get insight into Esau's brain and he looked at all the promises from Isaac, all the promises of God, and he saw them as absolutely worthwhile or worthless. Literally, he didn't trust God's promises. He didn't trust Isaac's promises. He saw in that moment, he chose a bowl of stew over all those things. And the reason he did is because he didn't value any of it. And the re- reality is the reason we give up so much is because we don't really trust that God's going to do what God's going to do. That there's a promise and there's a payoff and his providence is bending and shaping those things. And we go, not really that interested in that, God. That's somewhere way out in the distance. I'm more consumed with the day and you stay there and I'll deal with being self-reliant and prideful here. And so what we see in this passage, all this stuff about Esau, all this stuff about this hardened heart, all comes from a very specific place. Not trusting God. Particularly, not trusting God about his providence. So you go, well, how do I know if God hates me or loves me? This is the really complicated part, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song together. It's a really complicated part of um, these doctrines. How do I know if God loves me or hates me? How do I know if God loves me or hates me? See, this is where God's election calls people to himself. Charles Spurgeon would pray, God, would you draw your elect, and then would you elect some more, right? How do we know if God loves me and sees me as his child and wants to pull me out of the fire, or how do I know if he hates me? really is really simple. It all has to do with the motivation of your heart. When God calls you by name and says he wants you to be his child, do you believe him? Do you believe him? When God says, if whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, do you believe him? How do you know if you believe him? You make him Lord. You go, yep, God, you're much smarter than me. You are boss. That word Lord literally means to be in control of all things. So when God calls on you and says, hey, child, Will you trust me? You have one of two responses. You go, yeah, I trust you because you're bigger and greater and more powerful and you are in control and you are bending and shaping all things for my good and your glory simultaneously. And I'm going to lean fully in. Not halfway in, not part of the way in, but fully in, right? I'm going to lean fully in. When it says in Revelation chapter 3 that behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus talking. And whoever opens and enters, I will dine with them. I will be in them. That doesn't mean you open the door, Jesus puts his foot in and you go, that's enough, just want the foot. 
right? This is meaning, God, I so trust you as Lord, and I so trust your promises. And he brings himself into you and adopts you and says, no, Dad, this is one of ours. No, we love this one. This is our child because he trusts and knows that we're good. Do you trust and know that God's good? Do you trust a God who has redeemed people throughout the history of the world wants to do it again right now in our own hearts and minds in our own world? Do you trust that? Then you're loved by God. You turn your back on God and say, I want nothing to do with you. Then you get your wish. So so I'm going to lead us in a prayer. We're going to sing a song. And you can decide whether or not you want to trust in God's promises. And I usually want to be cute and funny. But really, the balance of heaven and hell and Life and misery hangs in this one thing of not your behavior, but just your trust. Just going, God, I just want to lean into you. Do you want to lean into him? Let me pray. Jesus, ah, Lord, where there seems to be no way, you make a way. And God, this isn't about like cleaning up the sin in our life and getting everything figured out and never messing up again. But this is about trusting a God who says that your mercies are new every morning, who is bringing yourself to us and making yourself available and tells us when we confess our sin to you, you are faithful and just because you're sitting at the right hand of the Father and you're telling the Father in this moment, God forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And this is more about trusting you making all things right, not us having to perform. I'm like, God, can we trust you? Can we trust your promises? So we sing the song when these words become true in our own hearts and our own minds. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing the song?